Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We're in the middle of the series called Checkpoint. I know in this service, they got some gamers up in here, you know what I'm saying? Got some teenagers in here. Um, I'm going to kind of bore you a little bit with some gaming history, even to me to make something like video games boring, right? So in March of 1969, a Japanese jukebox rental and repair guy by the name of Kagimasa Kazaki, yeah, he transformed his jukebox business into manufacturing machines for video arcades. And his first coin-operated game was released in 1978. The following year, 1979, it made its way to the North American markets. The company would soon become known as Konami Industries. And popular arcade games like Frogger, anybody remember Frogger? Yep, Super Cobra, they eventually started making those little cartridges that went down into the Atari game console. And I was an Atari kid, right? So in 1985, they developed a game called Gradius. Never heard of it. Um, the player then controls this little spaceship called the Vic Viper. And so you would go through all these different waves and different battle environments, right? Well, the guy that developed the game Gradius, his name was Kazuhisu Hashimoto. And I do not speak Japanese, so that's all like it's one time, you know what I'm saying? They, and, and he thought the game was too hard while they were playing it during testing because you need to get all the way through the game and make sure all the levels and all the coding and all that stuff works. So in order to do that, he developed a cheat code, kind of a secret code to give the tester a full set of power-ups. Who doesn't love power-ups? And a full set of like unlimited lives. You could just keep playing. No matter how many times your little Vic Viper died or whatever, you could just go. So the code was supposed to be removed before publishing. But they forgot about it. And so when it was finally discovered it was too late, the game was now being prepared for mass production, and they feared if it in that state of development, if they pulled the code out, that it would cause glitches in the game or other unforeseen issues. So the Konami cheat code was born. Anybody from the 80s remember the Konami cheat code? Yeah, uh, uh, right? Here you go. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A. Huh? That would like give you power-ups and that would give you like unlimited lives and all this stuff. I, video games are fun. They're a little counterproductive to life, you know what I'm saying? Because you can, three hours later, you're still, you know what I'm saying? But they're still fun, right? They can teach you motor skills. Like my kids used to play Minecraft and like one night I, or day I was just sitting there watching land and he's like, and his hands are like making all these things on this video game. It's like, how do you, like, I would do it, and I'm like, uh, uh. So I'm not, I, ain't, I don't have that, right? It's crazy what their hands can, can do. But video games can also give you a false sense of reality. Like, life doesn't have cheat codes. You know what I'm saying? There's not a cheat code to give you instant success and, and power-ups. And then you can even jump into the debate about violence and the impact that's having on the next generation. And, and the studies there, it's, it's not good. And that's where this whole idea of Checkpoint, our series, came from. Because as video games developed and as they grew and their technology got better, 
the, the games would develop this auto-save feature, meaning that if I'm playing and I'm in this level and my Vic Viper spaceship, it dies, I don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of the game or even the beginning of the level. I just got to go back to that last benchmark, that last checkpoint, right? I'm grateful there's a lot of things in our life that have those benchmarks. They have checkpoints. Life is a progression. If I failed, yeah, I got I to gotta step back just a little bit, but I don't have to start over. Just have to just pause and, and back up. Even if I do have to go all the way back to the beginning, I've learned in this process of life. I, I shared this last week. One night I was sitting there watching Landon. He was playing like Super Gun Shooter 37, whatever, I don't know. And the screen goes black, and I'm like, oh, no. And all of a sudden, this little typewriter font comes across, and it says, checkpoint. What's that? You know, and it means he's reached a benchmark. From that point on in the game, if he fails, he doesn't have to go all the way back to the beginning. He just has to go back to that checkpoint. Today, I want to I talk about the respawn. Not respond with a D, but like respawn. Like when you go back to the checkpoint and in gaming world, you, you respawn. You get a new life. You get a second chance at it. What does a do-over look like? What do those second, third, fourth respawns, what do they look like? There's several great do-over stories found in the Scripture, like King David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He got a second chance. And then Peter, when Jesus was on trial... Peter three times, not once, not twice, but three times. He denies even knowing Jesus. And then in John chapter 21, there's this beautiful story of Jesus kind of reinstating Peter. He asked him not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. You know I do, Lord. And then like the third time, I think the dots kind of connect for Peter. Then there's the story of Lazarus. He was dead. You talk about getting a respawn, you know what I'm saying? He like comes back to life and he gets another chance at life. But the story I want to look at today is found in John's Gospel, chapter 8. And it's about a sinful woman and how Jesus literally saved her life. And she was given a second chance. I want to encourage you to lean in today. Um, kind of a thoughtful message. You're going to have to think just a little bit. And so just kind of put Facebook down. You know, and just kind of lean in a little bit today. John chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered. Wherever Jesus would go, there would always be kind of a crowd that would show up. And he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. You say. The interesting about the crowds that followed Jesus is a lot of them were people who were sinful people. It wasn't the religious crowd. Sometimes they were because they were curious and more trying to trap Jesus. But a lot of times the people that were following Jesus didn't have the best stories. They didn't have the best track record. And this story is kind of missing a detail. Like you have to read it slow. You've got to kind of go line by line by line. If you're not careful, you get caught up in the suspense and the tension. And wah, 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 you know, they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And what's he going to do? And how's this going to play out? And if you're not careful, you miss this missing detail. Verse 3, it says, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman 
who'd been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in adultery. Not done a lot of research on the topic, a very limited knowledge of, of adultery. But I'm pretty sure it takes two to tango, right? And the story says that they brought a woman, but there was no man. And she's totally embarrassed. She alone is put in the spotlight. But to me begs the question, where's the guy in the situation? Like, why was the woman the only one that was brought to light? Where's, where's the man? Is it possible? We don't know because the story didn't tell us. But is it possible? Like, he was one of them. He was one of the religious elites. He was one of the Pharisees or one of their cronies. Are they hiding something? Are they covering up for one of their buddies? I don't know. But it's a missing detail in the story. Verse 6. They were trying to trap Him, Jesus, into saying something that they could use against Him. But Jesus, He stooped down and He wrote in the dust with His finger, but they kept demanding an answer. Huh? Huh? Now they start to sound like geese. Huh? Huh, Jesus? Huh? Sorry. Um, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right. But let the one who's never sinned, let the one of you that is perfect, the one of you that's never sinned, you can throw the first stone. This is a, this is a tough moment for Jesus. Technically, yeah. They're right. I mean, the law that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel, it does say that someone who is caught in adultery should be put to death. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant of God, the Old Law that God gave to Moses to give to Israel, it's very heavy-handed. It's even unique and gross. Don't believe me? Just jump right off into Leviticus. Not because God's a fun-hater, like, I don't think God's a fun hater. I'm pretty sure God's not a fun hater. God made dogs. Dogs are fun, right? Dogs are fun. If God was a fun hater, He would have given the cat the dominant species. But He didn't, right? God is not a fun hater. If He was a fun hater, He'd like done something different with cats. He gave the upper hand to the canines. What do you do with tacos? I mean, I'm pretty sure somewhere in the hidden code of Obadiah, it says on the ninth day, God made tacos or something like that. God, I don't, I don't, think, he's a, I don't think he's a fun hater. But you've got to be careful with the do's and the don'ts of the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. They can feel heavy-handed. But your teenager thinks you are heavy-handed. Your toddler says you're a fun hater when you don't let them go out and play in the street. Let them stick sharp, pointy things in light sockets or put small things in their mouth that they can swallow or they don't get to stay up really late. That's not fair. And the reason for the heavy consequences of sin that you'll discover in the Old Testament is it was God was making the best attempt to prevent long-term damage. Commit adultery? You need to be stoned. And I'm not talking about like what college stone. It's a different thing. Not, this is a like they would kill you with rock stone, not get the card and all that stuff, right? And, and being, being killed by stones, careful how I said it, right? It seems a little harsh, but God knew if certain behaviors were tolerated, it would have moral and cultural implications upon his people. There is no way around the fact Adultery hurts people. God knows the pain. 
that is caused to victims of adultery. The children in the situation or the other spouse in the situation. So the harshness was to protect. I mean, God's like, I'm serious. Don't do this. Because if you go down this road long enough, it's going to do a lot of damage. It's going to hurt a lot of people. It's going to impact the home. And it's going to become an accepted behavior and culture. And we all know that one sin will easily lead to another sin that easily leads to another sin. The intent of the heavy-handedness of the law was protection and correction. But then humanity gets involved. And humanity will bring the woman, but not the man. Humanity will bring one person to justice, but the buddy gets to go free. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're using this moment. What are you going to do now, Jesus? There's no cheat code for this moment. (laughs) And they try to trap him. They're trying to see if Jesus would actually go against God's law that he gave to Moses. And he answers this situation flawlessly. Verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his fingers. And they kept demanding an answer. Huh? Huh? I'll stop. You're welcome. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who's never sinned, go ahead. You throw the first stone. All right, you're right. He's guilty. He's guilty. But notice it says twice in the story that he stooped down. And he was riding in the dirt. And, and we, don't, we don't know, I wish, like I wish, and you know, they would say, and then Jesus wrote this. But we don't know. Like he's, he stooped down and he's riding in the dirt. It could be. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts out there on what he's writing. It, it, it could be he was writing like what he was hoping to have for dinner. I mean, he could be writing the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. Could be he was writing some of their names and sin they'd committed next to that name. Joe lied about how many fish he caught. <laughs> Matt thinks pro wrestling's real. Colby drives a Chevy. Brent thinks he can actually sing. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't know what he was writing, but whatever he wrote in that moment absolutely got their attention. Verse 8. He stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. And it gives this detail, beginning with the oldest. The ones that are a little more seasoned. Like, uh, you got me again, Jesus. Until it was just Jesus was left in the middle of this crowd that was following him, but all the accusers were gone, and now it's just Jesus and this woman. The wisdom of Jesus saved her life. His wisdom gave her a second chance. One by one, the people that brought her there to accuse her, to stone her, to kill her, they're gone. And she's still alive. Embarrassed, I'm sure. 
but she's been given a second chance at life. She gets a respawn. She gets to try this whole level again. And I love this, verse 10. Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. And Jesus said, catch this. Neither do I go and sin no more. If you study the theology, if you go into what Jesus was just talking about, he's the only person there that day who had the right to pass judgment on her. He was the only one there who had been tempted but never sinned. In this embarrassing moment for this woman, Jesus offers her mercy. In his last sentence that he said, neither do I, Go sin no more. It is a full picture of the gospel. It is full of mercy and compassion, but it's also full of correction. And to grasp the entirety of the gospel, it takes both mercy and correction. God is fully law. He is fully justice and righteousness but he's also fully grace and mercy. The problem is when these two no longer balance themselves out, right? You've got grace and obedience. Grace and obedience, they create this healthy tension in our spiritual growth. Like there needs to be a little bit of fear in us, but there also needs to be a lot of gratitude that God would forgive me. And it should create this tension that helps us to grow and walk in our spiritual journey as followers of Christ. I'm going to grow, I'm going to strive to get better, I'm going to live according to biblical standard as best I can, but when I fall short, I'm going to be so thankful for His grace. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. You must, not you ought to, not you should, not it'd be really smart, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into the old ways of living, satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God chose you as holy for the Scriptures say. Catch this. You must be holy because I, because God is holy. Now, to understand Peter, before Jesus ever came into Peter's life, and he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and then he was one of Jesus' closer companions, but before Peter ever met Jesus, he was a Jew. And you, you had relationship with God through keeping the law. Peter comes from a good Jewish background. And as you study his life, he has a really hard time letting, letting go of the law. He has a really hard time of, of, of fully embracing the grace of God. Like as you read the stories in the book of Acts, he has a hard time letting go of those Jewish traditions. Now, it's one thing to have those Jewish traditions. And to hang on to them because you find comfort in them, right? Like you grew up doing them, and I just like kosher food, and bacon's always been gross. Like, I don't know. It's okay if you, if you do that because you find comfort in it. But it's another thing if you think that keeping the law and keeping the Jewish customs will cause God to love me more. And Peter lived in grace, and he taught grace. But man, you sure see these tendencies where he kind of tips back into, oh, but the law. There's one story in Galatians chapter 2 tells, tells this story. Then when like nobody was looking, when it didn't matter, 
Peter would hang out with anybody. He would hang out with people who weren't Jews and people who were Jews but had become Christians. But then when other Jewish Christians came on, Peter wouldn't talk to certain people. He wouldn't talk to to people who were not Jewish Christians. And Paul actually confronts him. You can read that story in Galatians chapter 2. And so when you read this, it's, it's kind of that Peter that kind of leans toward holding on to that law. And he says, you must be holy in everything you do. Hard. It's tough. Here's the problem. He's not wrong. God has a spiritual expectation for you and I that we need to try, we need to strive, we need to seek to do what's right, we need to live rightly, or I'm going to throw a church word at you, righteously. Listen, God's saving grace is just as much about giving me the power to change how I'm living in this life as it has about saving me in the next life. God's power is just about me changing an old lifestyle as much as it is securing my place in heaven. Yes, it's about saving me from an eternity in hell, but it's also about changing me and saving me from a destructive lifestyle on this earth. Yes, Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven, but he wants me to have a relationship with his Holy Spirit, so I'm more than forgiven, I'm changed. God's mercy and His grace are about saving me in this life and in the life to come. And so Jesus in John chapter 8 looks at this woman who's guilty of adultery and He gives her a second chance at life. And He gives her a second chance spiritually. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And we love the first part of that verse. We love that mercy. We love that compassion. I don't condemn you. That shows there's power and mercy and grace. But the second part, that go and sin no more, whoo, doggies, that's a little harder. There's power in second chances. Really, there's power in second chances. Every person in this room, at some point in your life, whether by a parent, spouse, coworker, boss, God himself, everyone in this room, mercy has been extended to you. And just the relief that you experience. The freedom, your emotions were just overwhelmed. Nothing can really describe just the power of being given a second chance. It's a powerful moment. There is great power in second chances. Amen? But there's also a a problem with second chances. If you mismanage this statement, if you don't take both components of it, I don't condemn you and go and sin no more. If if you don't handle that right, then it tips out of balance. I'm grateful for second, third, fourth, 17th, 20th chances. Here's the problem with second chances and third chances and seventh chances. Pretty soon, we're not grateful for them and, and they just begin to chip away at our need to be holy as he is. It's okay. God will forgive me, winky face. And you know this, because you've seen those parents. They don't go to church here. They don't even go to church, probably. You know what I'm saying? But you, you've seen this. No judgment here. I'm going to count to three. You get over here. Yeah, I'm going to count to three. Don't make mama count to three. One, two, I mean it, three, one, 
Okay? Like we count louder, right? I don't know what louder does. So at three, mama was merciful. And every one of us in this room know in that moment, three means absolutely nothing. Just spank his little bottom already. We don't spank. Oh, we know. <laughs> there comes a point that three needs to mean something. Like you're going to have all your kids and you're unloading crazy little kid out of the car and then they just decide to take off and like the baby's still here and there's bags everywhere and you're like, what? And, and the baby's running out in front of cars. There comes a point where three needs to mean something. There's danger if it doesn't. And I'm so grateful that God got to three with me, and there were times he started over. One, I mean it this time. The problem is, if you're not careful, it will produce a bunch of Christians who were only Christians in what they prayed and never in how they lived. And if you go down this road long enough, the God of second chances and third chances, and I'm so grateful, one... Two, I really mean it, why? I mean, if you go down that road long enough, it simply boils Christianity down to what is the minimum I have to do and still be saved? What's the least I have to do and God will still forgive me? And what that will produce is a generation that God loves, but a generation that does not love God. We just want him for his stuff. And then we get mad when he makes us walk through tough. If your Jesus is not convicting you, you're not following the right Jesus. There is power in second chances. If you're not careful with them, there's a problem with second chances as well. Let me tell you what separates the power from the problem. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. In my spiritual growth, I need to be thankful for grace and not take grace for granted. I need to be thankful for grace and never take grace for granted. Let's pretend for just a minute and, and see how it feels. Okay? In Luke chapter 7, there's this moment. I think it's one of the most beautiful expressions of worship in the Bible. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. One of the Pharisees, he's one of the religious elites. Now, some of them truly did want to engage with Jesus and say that again. I really want to hear what you're saying. But it says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat when a certain immoral woman from the city heard that Jesus was eating there. She brought this beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping, and tears fell on her feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Listen, here at church, all we ask you to do is just sing a few songs. Raise your hand on them every once in a while. I'm not asking you to kiss anybody's feet. I don't know. It, it's probably not the same woman as the John chapter 8 adulterous woman. I don't know. But some scholars think it is. I'm sure in Jesus' three, three and a half years of ministry, he offered lots of second, third, fifth, seventeenth chances. I'm sure Jesus saved a lot of lives in there. But I like to pretend. I mean, the Bible does describe both women as a certain sinful woman, a certain immoral woman. What if 
What if the woman who Jesus saved her life, when Jesus stooped down and rode in the dirt, what if the woman that Jesus saved her life and changed her life, what if out of a heart of gratitude, she doesn't care who's watching, she don't care whose house it is, she don't care what people think about her, she doesn't care what the crowd says about her, she just bust onto the scene. And one of the most beautiful expressions in the Bible pours out this powerful moment of gratitude at the feet of Jesus. And her heart of gratitude is what gives power to this moment. It's the fact that she's thankful for the grace. She's not taking it for granted. Probably not the same woman. But even if it's not, there's clearly a woman whose life has been changed. There's clearly a woman whose life has been impacted by the mercy and the grace of Jesus. It's both. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He can forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm so grateful, God, that your mercy is unending. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. God, if I confess, you're faithful. The first Peter 1.15 says, you must be holy because he is holy. John 8.11 says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The gospel, the full essence of the good news of the gospel is both grace and growth. It's grace, but it's also, I'm going to work at getting better at the same time. It's grace for when I trip up. God, I'm going to live every day trying to live a biblical standard and get better and grow and get better and do what the Bible calls me to do. It begs this very common question, which has been fought about in churches Denominations have split over it. Churches have split over it. People get mad all over it. But it's a very common question. I've answered it a lot down through the years. Um, Pastor, can I sin so much that God would unsave me? Pastor, can I sin so much that I can actually lose my salvation? To which I would say, it depends on who's asking. Because there's two different hearts that ask this question. If it's the person who wants to know, hey, what's the bare minimum I got to do to make it? You know what I'm saying? I just got to pray that prayer thingy, right? I'm good. Just got to do it one time. And then I can go out and do whatever I want to with whoever I want to, however I want to. To that person, to that heart, I would say your life has not necessarily been changed by the gospel. You probably prayed a prayer out of fear because I don't want to go to hell. And losing your salvation... That's not your big issue right now. But instead, finding a real and meaningful, life-changing relationship with Jesus, when you completely surrender everything to Him, that's what you need to be concerned with. There needs to be a gratitude for the grace that Jesus shed on the cross to forgive you of your sin. And there needs to be a go and sin no more. There needs to be this desire that I'm going to get better with His help. But there's another heart that asks this question too. And if you have a heart that's full of gratitude, and you're striving and, and doing your best to follow Jesus, but you make mistakes, and you're trying to do your best, and, and man, I, I, mean, I came to church, it was so good, and I was washing my hands, right, I was crying, Jesus, I'm sorry, sorry I kicked the dog on Tuesday, and I won't even talk about what I said to my wife on Thursday. And you're trying, and when you come in, you feel this conviction, like, God, I'm grateful for your grace and your mercy, but you're always living in fear that God's mad at you. 
and you're always living in fear that God's angry with you and he's going to give up on you. And some of you even grew up in that church or you grew up under that heavy theology that was solely based on fear. Listen, you sin and you don't confess that before you go to bed, you're going to split hell wide open. What if I die before I confess all of my sins or what if I forget one? People, that's real. And some of you grew up in that. Listen, I want to offer you some piece of the gospel this morning. Found in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Paul says, I am convinced, and you'll never talk me out of it. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And then he goes on and makes a list. Kind of an impossible list. Death won't. Life won't. Angels won't. Demons won't. Fears for today. Worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. There are two hearts that ask this question. Can I lose my salvation? And the first heart is, what's the bare minimum I got to do just to make it to heaven? I would say you're asking the wrong question. The other one is a heart that is caught in a trap of trying so hard to earn God's love. Constantly living in fear. Constantly wrestling with, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Let Romans speak to you. How do you answer that question? Can, 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 I, can I lose my salvation? And by the way, if you're that person that wrestles with that, I'd love to chat with you. I don't want to debate. I want to help you resolve it. Here's how I, no BKV answer to how I answer that question. I am going to live like I could but I'm going to love God and worship God and be thankful for a grace. No matter how stupid I am, I never will. I'm going to live like I, I could lose my salvation by living and striving to be holy as he is holy. I'm going to love God and have a grateful heart and with hands lifted high in worship. God, I don't want to ever take for granted the second, third, 17th, 50th chance that you've given me. And I want to let the grace that's been shown to me my whole entire life push me, drive me, call me, and compel me to live a life worthy of Christ dying on the cross for me. I want to live a life worthy that's called. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.